Hello everyone. Before we start this episode, we have a short message. This is the ninth episode of In the Fields first series, and we're nearing the end. We'll be back for a second series, but your support is integral to making this happen. With a sector as dynamic as the one we work in, with people as passionate and excited as the ones we get to meet, there is no dearth of things to learn about and share with you. Your support will be used to help pay for research and production costs for the episode. the studio time the audio production the editing the scripting and will even help us reach far away groups and bring their stories to your ears if you would like to give we have a support page on our site www.inthefieldindia.org and to those who have already generously donated a big big thank you and now let's start the show probably i thought of uh, damini or sunny deol i don't know if you guys know him and uh, you know him shouting on the table that tarik pe tarik tarik pe tarik mili hai par insaaf nahi mila me lord or whatever so i went it uh, i went into a courtroom with that idea in my head but uh, so i was sitting in the audience the magistrate was barely audible and uh, you know the people who were standing in the stand basically who were accused were not I mean they clearly did not strike to me as criminals they were the most ordinary people they were clearly not influential people so i think that was where uh, my bubble burst welcome to in the field a podcast about india and development hosted by radhika vishwanathan and samyukta varma Our show is supported by Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies. In development work, there are some spaces that need big ideas and radical new thinking. And there are others that require a different form of engagement, a slower, more steady enabling presence. In these spaces, it's about fixing something by actually just getting it to work. But that's no small task. In this episode, we take a look at our justice system and two issues that mark its functioning: an apathetic system of legal aid and societal prejudice. The legal system might seem removed from our everyday lives. So what is our role in trying to make it better? The word languishing comes up frequently when researching the problems of our criminal justice system. Phrases like prisoners languishing or the languishing under trials are familiar phrases to us. We're going to start by trying to uncover the root of this image. In India, prisons are overcrowded. Not hard to picture that considering our country is overcrowded too. The average occupancy rate in Indian prisons is 114% and is as high as 233.9% in states like Chhattisgarh. But a large proportion of the people in prisons are under trials. People who are accused of a crime and awaiting a court date but they have not been released on bail. They're in pre-trial detention. Nearly 7 out of 10 people or 67% in jail in India are under trials. And here is where our statistics are alarming. India's under trial population is estimated to be the 18th highest in the world and the third highest in Asia. Compare this to the US where the incarceration rate is the highest but only 2 out of 10 prisoners there are under trials. So what exactly is the under trial problem? Why are there so many under trials in prison and how long are they languishing for? And isn't there a system to deal with them? And they're usually between 18 and 23, mainly. That's Jacob John and we'll introduce him and his team in a minute. Many of these under trials, just under a third are not literate. 4 out of 10 haven't completed school. 
They probably don't have access to informal networks of power and privilege, and they're probably in for a range of petty offences. They're also very often from disadvantaged communities. India has, unsurprisingly, a disproportionate number of Muslims, Dalits and Adivasi under trials, just about half of all under trials. The same group makes up a 39% share of the population in India. Justice is not an easy space to work in. When it comes to the unfundables, issues that are hard for donors to fund because they are hard to activate solutions for, access to justice is right up there. One of the things we're interested in, apart from learning about what the development sector is doing in this area and the issues themselves, is how you begin to think about projects. Where do you start when you want to build a development program? So maybe we can speak about how does it work. So yeah. if someone gets arrested, mm. right? Uh, this is Anil, and he works with Jacob on a courts and justice program. Let's and he's about to walk journey, us through the, the journey, journey of, someone of someone who gets, who arrested. gets arrested. Now, you can get arrested uh, for multiple uh, offenses, right? So step one is you get, get to a police station, and uh, there's an FIR of sorts that's, uh, that needs to be written against you. Uh, whether it's done or not is step one, right? Once the FIR is filed, the accused is supposed to be produced in front of a magistrate, who then decides the nature of custody, or... You can be freed too, right? Yeah, yeah. so that's step three, which... Uh, from some of our studies, we find that there's a lot of people who actually get bail in certain geographies at the police station, yeah. which may be indicative, but we're not entirely sure, of the fact that the police themselves either are not registering proper cases or that they're in some, there's some kind of lawyer and police nexus, right? The police then have to prepare a charge sheet, which is then presented in court. But not all cases make it this far. Many are resolved locally, outside the formal system. There's also oh, a yes. amount of local resolution of cases sure. that takes yeah. place. Yeah. In certain geographies, there are more serious crimes and in certain geographies, there are less serious crimes. And there is a lot of resolution that takes place outside of the formal legal system. Jacob is referring to channels such as local negotiation, mediation, or the matter being resolved at a community court. So back to where we were. Once the charge sheet is filed and presented in court, you need to have someone represent you. It isn't as smooth sailing as it sounds, because firstly, not every FIR that should get filed is filed. And there are many reasons for this. Good cops, bad cops, apathetic cops, ignorant cops, and some larger issues too. They're supposed to register a complaint and, mm -hmm. and an FIR. The challenge is no state or no police station wants to be seen as a crime-ridden police thana. And once the matter goes to court... Someone has to represent you. Uh, and hopefully, once you go through the process of being represented, being heard, the judge convicts you or lets you go. Now, the catch is, in the last three sentences, I have assumed a whole lot. Um, the first part is that you need to be charge sheeted. Now, there could be massive delays in that. And there are multiple reasons for this. It could be that there is no real case against you. It could be that information that is there is lost. Or people just didn't get back to your case. Or they didn't care enough to sit and actually follow up. Or that the data systems didn't talk to each other. Similarly, let's say you get uh, all, of, all of the charge sheet uh, procedure goes through, but you get presented in court. You may end up without a lawyer. Um, 
the judge may or may not take cognizance of it and he might just delay the case and give you another date uh let's say you get allocated a dlsa lawyer or an Air or a legal services authority lawyer he may or may not come and meet you he may not show up at court uh right now we've heard that they show up in prisons maybe once a month they are lawyers who are empaneled by the legal services authority which is under the judicial system jacob anil and neelima work together at the azim premji philanthropic initiative on their access to justice program they work with organizations that are carefully navigating the government and the judiciary to raise the profile of and support under trials okay so now we're getting closer to the crux of the problem that they're concerned with our present system of legal aid and its poor performance when it comes to dealing with under trials remember the trifecta of poverty lack of education and networks and disadvantaged backgrounds that describe who these under trials are so the problem is so large i mean even the largest organization has done practically no work the largest player it's is the legal services authority right and in how many years 30 years 25 25 years. years they have handled just 400000 cases yes. yeah 400000 cases in 25 years is a tiny number and because of this even when the system works it seems to be a drop in the ocean because of the scale of the problem because of the mm. scale of the problem because you can provide um assistance to 100 people but there's a thousand then you reach a thousand and there's 10000 when you reach 10000 there's half a million there's it's always going to be out of your reach so what gets them out of prison we don't know yet so what gets them out of prison are they paying their way out yes so that's our hypothesis that's what we think paying their way out under trials shouldn't need to pay their way out if they can't afford to the idea of legal aid in india is not new the rigvedas talked about some notion of social aid and in the mughal period shah jahan and aurangzeb directed their state lawyers of wakils to give advice free of charge to the poor they were known as wakile sarkar and then the british brought with them the notion of courtroom justice as we know it today in 1976 the 42nd constitutional amendment inserted article 39a which obligated the state to provide free legal aid by suitable legislation or schemes or in any other way to ensure that opportunities for securing justice are not denied to any citizen by reason of economic or other disability and in 1987 the legal services authorities act was enacted it created a service to provide free legal aid to citizens if they cannot afford to hire a lawyer 8 years later in 1995 the national legal services authority was set up under the authority of the same act creating a system and network of national state and district level legal service authorities to offer free legal aid lawyers are empaneled based on their levels of experience to these different authorities and are paid a fee by the state to offer legal aid today we have a tiered system of legal aid from the national legal services authority and at the state level you have the slsa or the state legal services authority and at the district level we have the district legal services authority The LSA has three main functions: providing legal aid, spreading legal awareness to people about their rights, entitlements and privileges, and organizing lok adalats to facilitate the settling of disputes through mediation. So what's wrong with this system? The large number of undertrials are an indication that something is broken. 
and the groups who work on access to justice are trying to find out what that thing actually is. A first step to understanding this problem is by simply sitting in court and closely recording what happens. We did an observation study in uh, Bangalore, Dharwad and Tukur because there were a lot of uh, you know, gaps that we were not able to, like you correctly pointed out over here. So what we found out was, of course, uh, again, uh, which was uh, confirming the hypothesis that the legal aid is particularly not working because out of the 288 cases that were observed in uh, Bangalore courts, there were only three uh, cases which were represented by legal aid lawyers. Uh, 44 out of the 288 did not have lawyers. Uh, so 41 were not represented and whatever. Uh, but 244 did have lawyers. Yeah. I mean, they did have lawyers. And uh, so what we actually found out was uh, even people from, uh, you know, uh, not a very, uh, uh, very uh, successful or elaborate background, they would do anything to get a private lawyer. Yeah. So you'll sell your land, you'll do yeah. anything. So basically, they'll take a loan. all these people are probably getting into debt. Yes. Yes. Mm. yes. So there's just one spanner in the works. Which is? Which is that you were talking about two different things for which you could sell your land for. Oh. One is to get bail, or one is to get release. We're not even at release right now. We're just talking about getting bail. Sure. So in the first 90 days, the likelihood of you getting out of prison is very high. It doesn't mean that you can't get convicted and go back. But, you know, you can be in severe distress just in terms of getting we bail or acquiring about, bail. Yeah, getting. Uh, the fact that you still need uh, repeated representation doesn't go away. The fact that you're in severe financial distress doesn't go away. Jacob and his team also came across another interesting fact. Most undertrials weren't actually languishing for years on end, as one imagined. Most people get out of jail in 95 days. So there's a constant flow of people coming into jail, going out of jail. I mean, we don't know if it's the same set of people. But in 95 days, your probability of getting out of jail is close to 70 to 80%. We did commission a study, and Neelima talked about it, the court observation study. And we also did a court record study. So we took out court records in three districts in, in Karnataka. We're doing the same thing in Maharashtra now. And the reason why we can confidently say that people get out of jail in three, I mean, three months, 90 days, is because court records tell us that. When we started, there were a number of civil society players who said that, you know, there is a large stock of people inside jail and they're permanently languishing in there. And that's a popular narrative. Um, increasingly, we're finding that's not true, that basically there's a large number of people going in and out and in and out and, in and, out, and there's a huge, very, very high rate of circulation. The percentage of undertrials in prisons hasn't changed much over the past decade. It hovers around 65 to 67%. So in fact, there seems to be a revolving door of people coming in and going out of the system. So the challenge for us is, can we make sure that 90 days becomes 60, becomes 30, becomes 15, 5, 2, 3, whatever. I mean, a smaller, much smaller number. And just get lawyers to do the routine which they were supposed to do. There were bailable cases which lawyers did not file a bail application for. And to me, that's... Um, Criminal? That's, yeah, that is criminal. <laughs> An Amnesty International study on under-trials published last year in 2017 found that in states like West Bengal, Maharashtra, Jharkhand, Karnataka, or Kerala, 
States with sizable numbers of under-trials, legal service lawyers made on average a little more than one visit per prison per month. Anil tells us that everyone wants to get out, and they will move heaven and earth to do so, because going to prison, guilty or not, brings with it incredible lifelong stigma. You go to jail for three months, and does everything go back to normal? No, it doesn't, right? You are someone who went to jail for three, three months or whatever. So this understanding, going back to your education bit, is that we don't actually, uh, we don't have a sense of A, paying your dues, even if you're guilty, or B, un- the understanding that you're innocent till proven guilty. Like, even that fundamental thing is not there. So the kind of stigma you're carrying back after those 90 days is insane. The other thing is that your family might be convinced that you're guilty just because you went to prison. It doesn't have anything to do with even the larger sort of Uh, space that you occupy. Your own family might give up on you. We spoke to some lawyers to find out what kinds of lawyers volunteer to join the LSAs and why they don't seem to do a good job. They told us many young lawyers join up to get access to cases, to get some experience under their belts and to set up their own practices. As they get more senior, it's often seen as prestigious to be part of the legal services authority at the state level and from there it could even be a stepping stone to other positions. Financial incentives really aren't the reason people sign up. And fees for lawyers paid by the state vary widely from state to state. So um, different states have different rules, but um, you need a certain number of years to practice certain kinds of cases. Now the challenge is if you have five years of experience, you wouldn't want 700 rupees that is going to be paid by the DLSA at the end of a case. And 700 is just a figure. I mean, it could be 7,000 difference. I mean, Gujarat has some somewhere around 27, 27,000? 30,000. 30,000. So, I mean, they're probably the best paying state um, in India right now for the DLSA criminal, criminal cases. The people we spoke to told us the reasons why the Legal Services Authority lawyers don't do a great job could also be the fact that they aren't incentivized to do so. Studies have found that it's difficult to monitor these cases. There are no systems in place and definitely no penalties to lawyers doing a bad job. Um, so yes, you would probably get people who um, are either not very good at their practice and therefore need some cases in order to just get their practice going. Or you'll get um, a situation where a, a DLSA lawyer is allocated, but the lawyer who may be quite good does not take that case seriously because it does not pay enough for them to actually be serious about it. And they're not called to account. They, um, there is no system to say that if you um, are allocated the case, you should go to the prison to meet the person and or every month or whatever it is. Or you should file a a bail application or you should make sure that if the charge sheet is not filed you go to the magistrate and say hey discharge this person because this person uh, the charge sheet has not been filed so there is um, unfortunately that none of that happens and the DLSA kind of remains uh, good on paper but very very poor in practice the data that Jacob Niliman Anil and many others in the sector use come from a few limited sources. The National Crime Records Bureau produces annual statistics on crime, justice and prison rates. But many will tell you that these stats are low. And one reason could be... 
by and large ncrb seems to be the go to data on this and ncrb has its own issues which is that ncrb doesn't actually physically do any collections it writes to people saying okay how many people do you have in prison for example and a lot of it self reported data and that's partly why our partners feel like there's massive under reporting you know and then prison databases aren't the best sources of data either prison databases inherently are not well kept people actually at the prison will not know why someone was uh, brought in what was the date he was brought in there are other data sources reports have been published by independent organizations like the chri or undp and of course the numerous individual studies conducted by small organizations working on specific access to justice issues but this is still a small arena with limited support that has traditionally been occupied by lawyers collectives human rights organizations and organizations supporting women and minority groups work that these organizations have done would very often tend to be um work on violence against women as well as cases on the death penalty and where the state has kind of taken an extreme view and decided that the person deserves to die and that's when they kind of take uh, i mean they argue for cases and saying to mit- to commute the death penalty and so on. so very the routine cases very often get left out because it's just the sheer volume of cases that um, a, a pro bono lawyering outfit can't manage and um, historically many organizations have given money but there is less and less money in the space and so people have to optimize the money that they get but the under trial problem is largely about the routine cases involving smaller crimes committed by people who can be forgotten which are even less likely to be given attention so the cases that you drop could be just the routine things like theft and um assault and uh, very i mean sometimes it could just be loitering loitering is a crime in india so that's the problem those kinds of cases which effectively are can be resolved very quickly now beggary is a crime very i mean and then there are there are less and less organizations doing work in this space so one of the things that you know one of our partners keeps telling us is that there are only three things that get people out of jail one is a strong social connect something to look forward to and of course the resources to get it out you know good representation when we focus on the justice system we tend to be most concerned by the issues that have a high profile rape death penalty human rights hate crimes and these cases are important because they are looked to as milestones that mark where we are as a society what freedoms we value and how they link with our mores and our morals amongst these hard topics is violence against women an issue that we as a culture are still trying to internalize as being a crime The Protection of Women from Domestic Violence Act was passed in 2005. However, according to a recent data piece, the number of cases reported of cruelty and domestic violence faced by women has been going up. Despite this, Majlis, an award-winning organization of women lawyers started by Flavia Agnes, says most cases don't reach the justice system, which is why groups like them are devoted to making sure these cases actually get there. You're about to hear from Audrey DeMello, a women's legal rights advocate at Majlis. 
And she distinguishes between crimes against women and children and other crimes because family members are often the perpetrators in these cases. When it comes to violence against women and children, especially um, uh, domestic violence, uh, it's the person within the family who is committing this crime. And given that family is considered the epitome of um, security or uh, the beginning and end of everything, uh, saying something about a family member, especially uh, a husband or, or, or somebody or a father, it becomes so much difficult for a woman to take that stand. Because in a way, you are a victim till you keep quiet. But the moment you actually go out and want to secure your rights, then you're actually an accused who wants to break your family. If you take the broad view, and access to justice is much broader than even that. If a woman faces violence at home, the primary resolution that tends to take place is outside of the formal legal system. Yet, as a citizen and as a person, she has rights and she's entitled to a legal process. Okay. So we have police officers who with impunity will tell you that, oh, but how can we record this case of rape because, you know, it will break her family or she won't be able to get married. And suddenly they become these patriarchal um, um, uh, defenders of this woman to protect her when actually all they have to do is follow the law, which is very clear in black and white as to what they need to do. And this is why it becomes very, very difficult, becomes very difficult for everybody to access law. But when it comes to women and children, especially when it comes to violence against women and children, it's a huge barrier. Audrey tells us of a recent story concerning a young woman, around 30, who came to Majlis's notice when a priest informed them about her. She had been badly beaten up by her husband and was in hospital. Three of her ribs were broken, and in the frustration of it all, she consumed poison. Her children were witness to all of this. When the police were called, they were reluctant to file a case. So when the family asked, why are you not recording anything, and they said, oh, if you want, we'll record a case against you because you consumed poison and this is attempt to suicide. So they were really scared and that's how they approached Muchless. And um, I was just aghast. And it, this was actually shortly after the Supreme Court judgment uh, recently in September, which says that uh, all women are liars. Uh, they complain about 498A and domestic violence, but these are all false cases. And so police are just not ready to respond and take this case. So I had to move heaven and earth, call right up to the commissioner of police. And because we work so closely with the police, we have this access and we got the case recorded. This particular case came out around the time there was an uproar over a judgment, Rajesh Sharma versus the state of UP, which contained remarks about the misuse of Section 498A of the Indian Penal Code by women to harass their husbands and in-laws. Audrey also found out that three months before this incident, the woman had been beaten up, thrown out of her house, and had her children kept from her. When she approached the police, they did nothing. She also approached the State Commission for Women and recorded a complaint saying that she feared for her life and received no response. And they don't even call her for a meeting. These are agencies set up to address violence against women. Their purpose is that. They have no other purpose. The police later called her back for a meeting and sent her to a community mediation group. And they forced her to go back to her husband. 
she could have been a number in that statistic of dying women so many so and you know quote and quote support systems for women like um, you know in the police station you have the mahila police uh, you have special cells you have uh, what not and these are the money spent by government to support but when women approach them this is how they react majlis does a lot of work with victims of violence in addition the organization conducts police trainings on sensitization judicial trainings on the actual letters of the law that pertain to women victims so that they know how to respond correctly and they also support other ngos doing this work audrey emphasizes that a lot of the daily work is walking alongside women through the entire process of accessing the justice system because the courts are often the last resort for women and through this the organization is able to do two things one to ensure that the system is responding to women and two to closely observe and record how the law works on the ground and that is what helps majlis address policy change so every time we see that the stakeholder is not responding to this victim as per what is mentioned in the law we raise these as campaign issues with the necessary stakeholder so for example um uh, we are in the sessions court bombay where rape trials are conducted and we share a report with chief justice every quarter to say that this is what is going wrong in the sessions court this is what the judge did and we we actually name the person who has done it giving details of what exactly happened so you're not really condemning the whole system but you're you're pinpointing where the problem is and who the problem lies with so this is a major work that helps change the system and what we believe we need to work closely with these stakeholders not only to complain but also to kind of um, enable them to respond in an earlier episode we spoke about the idea of knowledge and privilege so anilima brings up an important point saying because um people who have money can resolve outside of the legal system it's the people who don't uh, who don't have any money and have no influence will probably settle for a deal outside the legal system i mean because they recognize the disparity in power and um, unfortunately the legal system fails people and it fails um people who are poor who are um not very i mean not very empowered themselves so people like me and you or our friends right who know people who know anybody we will try to so at around 12 o'clock in the night if something happens i don't know we'll try to call up whoever we know we'll try to bribe as much as we can to not go to a police station or to get out of the police station as soon as we can and we will do whatever is required the problem comes when a person doesn't have these right contacts connects as we made this episode we began to realize that if we profess to not know about our local government arms and agencies then we probably know even less about the police and the courts in school we learn about fundamental rights and directive principles of state policy In 10 standard civics we learn about writs and then memorize a bunch of latin words but how well do we know what they mean how they translate down to the daily workings of our institutions and how we are expected to navigate them absolutely i absolutely believe that the constitution should be taught in school people should know their rights and duties and and this whole interaction with law should be an everyday procedure for us it should not be a thing to be fearful of 
and unless we're talking to children about rights about their constitutional rights and their duties um you know we cannot address this problem because the 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 whole system the family the society kind of ingrained in you that law is bad do not interact with law and then you're expected when something happens to you to interact with law and it doesn't that easily so you need an everyday uh, easy access to it you know you need to know what there's your closest police station you need to know that officer there because then only when something happens to you will you be able to walk in so i do believe and and i think more than uh, anything else uh, law should become part of everyday life of uh, children growing up so that they do not fear the law a few months ago we were at a development conference and access to justice is one of the issues being discussed and then something interesting happened an elderly distinguished looking gentleman but clearly not an ngo type stood up he was a retired very senior police officer who was trying to raise funds for an organization to support police welfare and that made us think in many other countries police welfare funds and police unions are extremely influential and well regarded but in india we don't really think of the welfare or well-being of the police force and perhaps we should because in the end they're just people doing their jobs and one way to make them do their jobs better is by taking an interest in what they do i made a bunch of prison wardens and one of them came from up they were talk about you know humane behavior with the prisoners and all and and eventually it turned out that the laundry list of things that he said he does with his prisoners made him look like the most humane prison warden there was he said you know we actually have you know mulakatis in the open we don't have we don't actually have a cage separating people and we have an open mulakati and we we encourage people to do you know things and keep their uh, mental health in order by letting them out in the open with activities and things like that one thought i was left with one of the warden said is that you know you don't realize we you know prisoners get out in 7 years we're there for 30 years so we are in prison for 30 years that's my i am in a prison for 30 years you know and so there is a there's a certain empathy that one should have with the system uh that's very very crucial to untangling this whole knot uh and so for me that was a very telling moment because he said listen every day i have to shut that shop but every morning i have to open that shop up so i am in jail for the next so many years that i've chosen to take up this job you know what that made me realize is that these are this isn't some machiavellian plot by a bunch of individuals you know there are structural problems in the way we are organized and so that gives me hope in the sense that there are good people in the system as well who want things to change you know and so and they're working with whatever limited means there are and that's the end of the show don't forget to donate your support would give life to a whole bunch of new episodes and if you do support us drop us an email and tell us what you're interested to listen to us talk about and for this episode thanks to anil ramprasad nilima karat jacob john and audrey demello many many thanks to advocate bhairav and advocate basavraj for helping us think through the details in the field is produced and hosted by radhika vishwanathan and samyukta varma we are supported by rohini nilekani philanthropies so until next time from the entire team priya santosh and hollis a big thank you and please do subscribe for updates on our website and follow us on facebook and instagram we're at in the field india <laughs>